When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello there. Thank you for joining us on this week's The Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me today is Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. Michael, you wrote about Nuno Espirito Santos' Tottenham Hotspur over the weekend. You weren't very polite about them and their midfield structure in particular. Now they are Antonio Conte's Tottenham Hotspur, new manager in charge already. Uh, What's your reaction to that big news in the Premier League? Yeah, it just feels like a massive upgrade, doesn't it, really? With all due respect to Nuno, who did a good job at Wolves, but getting in someone who's won titles in two different countries, I think did a really good job with Italy as well, sometimes forgotten. They're a bit unfortunate to go out on penalties in Euro 2016. But yeah, he's he's done a good job pretty much everywhere. He's gone Conte. And uh, I guess the question is really why it didn't happen in the summer and why that agreement couldn't be reached then. Uh, it does feel like Tottenham have wasted four or five months. But uh, yeah, I think quite exciting. Well, very exciting for Tottenham. And I'd say pretty exciting for the Premier League as well, because I think uh, it raises the level of Spurs uh, almost overnight. There's a sort of acceptance, or well, I've seen a lot of today anyway, that Conte is, particularly out of the currently unattached managers, the best sure thing for short-term improvement, and dare I say winning, uh, first and foremost, football matches and potentially uh, trophies, which is what... Spurs are so thirsty for. Uh, He took over Chelsea after they had finished 10th in the Premier League, a a completely disastrous campaign, and they won the title the next year. Uh, How many parallels can we draw with that job? To what extent should we assume, I guess is what I'm asking, Conte will make Spurs into a top four side because he's Antonio Conte and that is what he has done in his last three or four jobs? Yeah, I think he, he improved sides immediately. He did the same with Juventus. I mean, they'd finished seventh for two years uh, before he took over, uh, before he took them over and uh, and won the league three times in a row. So I don't know whether you can compare it to either of his particular jobs in, in specific terms, other than to say, yeah, he does tend to get results fairly quickly. And uh, it's odd taking over midway through a season again. If he'd done so in the summer, I think they, they probably would have had a much more exciting, more competitive season. So I don't really know what the target is for the rest of this campaign. But I'd say it's bad news for the other sides who are going for the Champions League places, the European places. Arsenal have felt certainly on an upward curve and, and beat Spurs in the derby. And it felt like, you know, the power shift was coming back their way. But I think Conte does, yeah, really does change that situation. We're not talking about that in depth today. The good news is there is a big Michael Cox, Antonio Conte piece going out on the Athletic site very, very shortly. So make sure you head there to read further thoughts from Michael on the newest manager in the Premier League. And of course, if you haven't got a subscription to The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the best place to go in order to rectify that. Uh, But we're going to move on to the next part of the podcast and we're going to have to cue some sad music because joining us on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and I normally say as ever but for the very last time is uh, Tom Warville. Hello Tom, uh, bittersweet this, you're you're leaving us but for something very very exciting. Yeah it is, uh, it is bittersweet 
uh, maybe even slightly emotional. Uh, but no, yeah, last last podcast with you guys, um, and I'll be joining um, RB Leipzig uh, next week. Probably by the time you you listen to this, some people will already be started there uh, as a data scientist in their scouting team. So uh, yeah, very exciting opportunity. Um, but sadly, means you will no longer be hearing me or reading me on the Athletic. That is a, a huge blow. What an exciting opportunity as you say from the digital press to counter press uh, I, I feel a bit like I feel a bit like how uh, for example a QPR fan probably felt when Abere Eze left for Crystal Palace in the Premier League you know mostly sad that I don't get to do the pod with you anymore but also a, a huge sense of pride at having worked with you and excitement at the uh, the opportunity that you have in front of you so data scientist for RB Leipzig what can you tell us about the role and what you might be doing there yeah I guess have to keep it kind of strictly high level but um, a lot of stuff to do with with data scouting in terms of trying to find targets of them with data Um, also stuff to do with you know first team analysis to some extent as well using data and how you can use that to uh, help the team um, and kind of anything really that sits in between that, that touches data. So, you know, a lot of the pieces you've seen on the site, the very different uh, pieces we've written, the different approaches can be applied to a club. And I guess I'll be doing pretty pretty similar things there. So, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of work to do, um, but very exciting all the same. And you've had quite an interesting varied career so far, a young career, of course, but, but you, you started with Opta where you built models and, and devised metrics and then you've been with The Athletic for uh, around two years and in your opening piece you called yourself a a translator of sorts that was your role with The Athletic we're going to delve into that a little more later and now in-house within a football club that very specific aspect of it going and becoming part of a football club must come with an incredible sense of excitement yeah totally Um, it's always been my goal to work at a club at some point um ever since being at, at university and reading about you know Liverpool starting to have a department um, and hearing about people joining clubs and doing work like this within them and I think for me that's always been a been a goal of mine um, and yeah it just so happens that this opportunity came up and is a you know it's a very good one they're a, they're a great team there's a lot of resource there um, the squad is fantastic at the moment and I think they're just very well placed mm. and I thought that this is a, a very, very good opportunity indeed. So, um, yeah, it's uh, definitely exciting. Big, big kind of personal and professional challenges in terms of moving to Germany, um, not knowing the language um, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, it should be, uh, should be fun. I'm interested to see whether you use the phrase personal news in your tweet announcing this because it, it strikes me that it, it's rarely personal news. It's more professional news, isn't it, really? I mean, personal news would be I'm getting a puppy or a nose ring or something yeah, like that. Or, you know, my, my eczema's disappeared or something like that. That's more the vibe. Well, do let us know when um, it does. And if you do get that nose ring <laughs> to fit in, in in Leipzig, then um, be sure to let us know. H- how much of this move is down to the fact that Dominic Soboslai plays for RB Leipzig? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's got. A, it's a funny one having done such in-depth piece of work on him around January, linking him to to <laughs> Arsenal and I think uh, some a couple of other European clubs, and then he went to to Leipzig. So uh, no, sadly, Zobrzlai doesn't have a a big impact on my decision to go there, but um, will certainly be fun to see him play in the flesh. Michael's a little quiet, uh, a little emotional. Yeah, no, disappointing to see Tom going, but I, I mean, I remember when um, we were looking for a data person. I remember when the editors said to me, "Oh." what do you think of Tom Morva? And I was like, well, yeah, he's really good, but 
he's not going to come to us. He'll be go and work for a really big club doing something. So pleased that we had uh, what eighteen months or so of uh, of him here. And I have I, I did um, I did search Tom uh, some of Tom's tweets to see what he tweeted about Leipzig, hoping that he would have slagged him off and I could leak this to to mean he could stay with us. <laughs> but I'm afraid he's been very complimentary about their. Uh, their scouting and and their data work <laughs> over recent years. So seems like a, a match made in heaven. Seems like a long con to me that. Um <laughs> the, the good news the good news of course Michael is uh, and Tom of course because I know that you you're leaving with uh, with a lot of love in your heart for for your current job it is that Mark Kerry your colleague who uh you've kind of been joined at the hip uh, backs to the wall to uh, to a large extent, providing so much work, both your own concepts, your own articles, but also uh, helping so many of the athletic writers with their football coverage. Mark Carey is uh, is continuing his work on the athletic site, at least until Bayern come calling. And uh, he'll be joining us on the pod, uh, we hope, unless he's too busy. Uh, and, uh, and with a, a warble-sized hole to fill, of course, the uh, journalist, data journalist transfer window remains open. So, no doubt the Athletic are working hard on on that front as well. We thought, given it's your last pod with us, Tom, um, a, a discussion about data and its use in football journalism, its growing use in football journalism, where we're at, where we might get to, uh, and and what you're looking forward to, to watching from afar now without being right at the heart of it. Just basically to mine you for information and, and opinion, I suppose, one last time on, on this matter, because evidently it's something that we hold close to our hearts. That's why you've been such a big part of the pod for the last year or so. Uh, and we assume many of the listeners as well are uh, at least interested in this to a certain extent. So uh, I, I suppose a, a very general question to start with, because as I mentioned, when in your previous job at Okta, um, in your own words, you were building metrics and models. Uh, your hire by The Athletic, I presume, was one of the first of its kind in, in terms of major football writing sites, hiring someone of your ilk. Uh, what have you learned about data and its use in football journalism in your 20, 21 months at The Athletic? Yeah, it's a very it's a very big question. I try to boil it down to to three things really in, in prepping for this. And I think the first one is just understanding that the kind of modern fandom has changed so much that there is actually a big appetite for this and it's no longer kind of a niche part of the game. Um people are interested in unexpected goals and they are interested in kind of quantifying playing style and looking at the stats behind a new player that we're signing and um I think that's changed fairly rapidly in the past few years to think that XG's gone from this kind of stat that's banded around Twitter in the early days to one now that is regularly used on broadcasts and regularly used by all the writers on the site you know, without an explanation. It's just kind of um, second nature now to, to use that to talk about the game. So I think that's been interesting to see and, and be a part of and, um, yeah, you know, provide content for for people like that who are actually also asking some really interesting questions and these aren't kind of researchers these aren't people who work at clubs these are just average fans who are interested in these numbers for their fantasy games or an Mm. argument with friends or even just discussing articles that that we've written so that's been is it flippant to suggest that there's an extent to which uh, on the flip side you might have previously received or currently expected when you joined more people to say things like lol mate football's not played on spreadsheets it's played on grass yeah for sure I think there was a part of me when I joined uh, thinking about the comment comment section with some level of dread Um, it's probably been helped a lot by the fact that Liverpool and other clubs have been so public in their use of analytics and it adds a bit of 
um, substance to what's being done and the work is actually useful and you know if you can point to Liverpool using it and fans of that club saying this is nonsense it's kind of difficult for them to stand by that point when they know that a lot of their club's success is due to um, them buying into this area so there's been some small wins like that actually within the game which have probably helped get buy-in and, and get mm. people interested for sure um, so that's kind of number one two I think is probably the content and the the kind of bigger pieces that I've done I think I've only ever previously had a an interest in kind of a small portion of the internet either on Reddit or on, or on Twitter um, but now there's just definitely more of a kind of mainstream interest in longer form analytics pieces and um, that's not kind of clickbaity transfer analysis that is tell me about crossing that is what is expected threat um, that is what is speed in football um, I've done a bunch of those and they've always been the kind of the most shared most read pieces so that's been really interesting again to see the the interest levels there um, and also knowing that there's a fairly large portion of our readership which um, work at football clubs and I know a bunch of people who work at clubs and their only exposure really to stats in the media has been through Monday Night Football and through us I think that's amazing that's such a an interesting way of hearing that you know manager X is <laughs> the only way that they understand XG is from reading a piece or you know reading me Michael on Tuchel or something like that I think that's that's been really really fun to to hear about and understand that we have a massive platform for actually changing the way people think about the game as fans but also in the game as well yeah absolutely I mean I, I remember I think we did a whole podcast episode about Arsenal's crossing and yep. just saying it out loud a few years ago would have would have been absolutely insane. And I'm sure there are uh, many people who would have no interest in listening to something like that. And and that's the beauty of the uh, diverse content on offer these days on on all platforms really, but certainly online. Uh, and yet it was one of our most ever listened to podcasts. Now whether that was because Arsenal were involved and they weren't doing very well at the time it is is probably more apt. But it, it I've certainly felt even myself as a as a sort of linked observer, uh, what you're suggesting. Uh, what about anything more specific about, you, you hadn't, and tell me if I'm wrong, done writing on this scale before as your mm. job anyway. So as a learning experience for you, right, I know a lot about this stuff. I want to apply it to this sport. Uh, what have you learned, I guess, in, in becoming a better writer, making what you know more relevant, more applicable to, to what people want to read? I think it's probably that, uh, one of the biggest realizations I had within a few months was that I really was probably quite naive at thinking that um, the stats and the numbers could actually measure everything. And there's actually so much more in terms of you know watching the games, reading about the teams, reading the post-match press conference notes and things like that, which give you a much better rounding and understanding of a team and how they're playing and why they're playing a certain way. And that feeds into your understanding of the numbers. And I think I wasn't aware of how much I didn't know. And I think it was, I can't remember the context of the piece. So I think it was Stuart Webber recently who said that football is the infinite game in the sense that it's so hard to kind of fully understand everything and the nuances and kind of really master it as a subject. And I think that's really interesting because I definitely have found that I've always, you know, every single article I've done, I've learned something about the game or I've learned something about a team. And that is kind of one of the, massive bonuses of this job is that you get so much closer to football than you probably ever could um, closer to you know Burnley and Leeds which I wouldn't have much of an affinity to previously so um, yeah I think there's there's a lot in between there of kind of like relating the numbers to the tactics and actually what's seen and like 
there's more that can be done there, but I think that we're getting closer to like better understanding and explaining what's happening on the pitch. And I think that's me and myself, me and Michael doing our jobs well, if, if that's the case. I like that you mentioned Burnley and Leeds there. Is it the teams at the extremes of the metrics that you're studying <laughs> that tend to naturally catch the eye more and, and conjure up more interest than those in the middle of the the, the charts. I, I wonder if it's just more that those are the writers that I've perhaps worked closest with in the last... I think I've done a lot with, with Andy Jones on Bernie specifically and um, also Phil Hay has some very kind of nuanced ideas around Leeds, which have always been fun to, to kind of attack. I think one we did recently was the difference in formations of Leeds and the impacts of that uh, and then how Calvin Phillips is kind of a, a unicorn of sorts amongst midfield skill sets. So, uh, yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun actually working with with the different writers and seeing how they all approach answering pretty similar questions in quite varied ways. And Burnley just love an in-swinging corner, don't they? They just love an in-swinging corner. In terms of some of the challenges that you faced, um, ones that, that maybe you, you wouldn't have been able to envisage previously, I've always been astounded at, and maybe this speaks to a lack of creativity on my part, but the fact that in, in your particular role, and dare I say it, in, in Michael's as well, but probably less so, there's an almost limitless scope of what you can cover, what you can talk about and write about. And also, because there's so, met, so much in terms of breaking down a game, you can look at team style, individual players, scouting, a, a, a sort of limitless scope of how you can cover it as well by doing what you're doing and and that would intimidate me to to quite a large degree I must admit especially when you know day to day you're also helping out so many writers uh, as a kind of co-author to their pieces as a as a Robin to the Batman yeah totally I think that whenever people think of analytics and data they think it's like wholly objective but I have like my own mental model for breaking down a game of football the same way that Michael has a, a different one and Mark Carey has another one and Ali you have a different one like there's even though I'm the kind of the analytics writer there's still a level of decision making in choosing what's interesting what's worth talking about and what's worth looking at which I don't think you could ever get away from having that kind of subjective element to it so um, yeah there is a lot of curation involved that kind of you don't see on the cutting room floor of charts that aren't used or stats which aren't interesting or things like that and again football's infinite there's there's a bunch of different topics you could always talk about which aren't spoken about um and yeah i think that's probably one of the the biggest things i've well as well that i've had to learn is kind of that curation and, and seeing you know you test out theories and ideas in the real world and they they fall flat and you learn from them and things like that so uh yeah it's been a very good feedback loop at times um in that sense and because you're not writing to an audience that you can assume know all of the concepts that, that you're writing about, um, there's quite a lot of explaining that has to be done. Uh, quite a lot of the word count can, can be used, I think, needing to explain context of, of what you're discussing, the numbers that you're, uh, that you're bringing up, but also explaining at times even things like sample size and why, you know, why what you're writing isn't necessarily a, an approach a conclusion but rather something to flag up I feel like someone like Michael writes such is able to write such uh, strong opinion pieces based on, on the tactical analysis that he's writing in a way that your your data analytic writing it's hard to sort of come to opinions and conclusions with reckless abandon dare I say it because as you say it's the infinite game or... yeah, yeah I don't know if it's just the nature of like when you, as soon as you're using numbers, it's going to science and part of science is like, you know, so much 
caveating and so much opening up things and, and not actually wanting to put your flag in the ground to go absolutely fully certain that something's the truth and maybe that's yeah. down to like a, a personal thing and how I how I think about problems things like that or is it down to that's the nature of analytics just being a bit hesitant mm. <laughs> um, but that's something I've I've had to kind of wrestle with a, a fair amount of times of just like reading over old copy and being like god you're, you're hedging so hard here like you can't have an opinion it's not that deep but in terms of the the more sort of contextual stuff having your own style which you were able to develop quite early that must help a lot on, on that front yeah i think having kind of space to to develop that and have a bit of a and the pizza guy yeah exactly um which i think is uh, it was a very good early tool and it's a good way of like bringing people in and it's eye-catching and um you know people enjoy them but i think one thing we maybe got wrong is is not explaining the charts in like a uh, another piece um get a quite like you know a lot of questions to start with people saying you know what do these things mean and there's only so many times you can go back on twitter threads and reply to people it's probably easier to to have a standalone explainer for that so we have that with those we have that with kind of a metric glossary now as well and i think those are like good things to have have a kind of central resource such that you know subscriber number x um, who joins tomorrow can get up to speed and, and enjoy this stuff the same way that someone was who was with us right at the start of the journey was uh, was there to kind of understand it on on day one. So uh, yeah, that's been a a big learning, and I think that's that's probably the same in many industries, right? In different contexts, have a way of <laughs> transferring knowledge that saves you from doing it again and again and again. So you're heading in house, and you'll be sort of watching from afar. I, I want you to lay down the gauntlet here to uh, current analytic football writers uh, what do you think are the, are the big blind spots at the moment the ways that uh, uh, data analytics in journalism is is still struggling to cover every aspect of football yeah I think um, one of the more nuanced ones is probably that we're great at kind of team analysis and talking a bit about which teams are good and which teams are bad in terms of xg and points per game and all that stuff but I don't think we're too good at uh, limiting that to actually talk about managers and talk about manager analysis um, and the few pieces we have done on the site to do with like manager analysis have done we've done things at 21st Club who are a kind of consultancy I think they're called the 21st Group now um, and kind of use some of their bespoke metrics and their process that they use for very high paying clients um, we've used some profiles from Smarter Scout we've used some from uh, people in the analytics community um, uh, and I don't think there's like a standardised thing there like a like a perfect answer right now um and i think obviously you see us relying on things from different people shows that it's not like a big thing in the the toolkit from the data providers um so i think that that is a an area which i think definitely could be improved upon um and and, and done better for sure and it's going a bit deeper than you know even just knowing what manage what formations different managers use and things like that is extremely useful it's not always the easiest to find um Although we have used things from, from transfer marks in the past. So that's one that I think is interesting. And when you can talk about Spurs' manager search and be very objective with it and put some numbers behind it, I think that's that's a, a very good piece. Um, so that's one. I think also one of the earliest questions I had, I think it was, well, it's probably the start of last season now when City were on their fairly bad run before they became good, um, was Sam Lee, our, our Man City writer, came to me and said... Um, City are bad. What's happening? And I think my answer was, yeah. So their, you know, their XG four is dropped off a cliff, and their XG against is pretty much the same. And he's like, yeah, I see that, but what's happening? And that to me kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of of looking at the game more in a possession point of view and seeing if they are 
being more or less efficient in turning possession into shots and possession in and around the box into shots and things like that. And I think getting into the the weeds of um, actual tactically how a team are using the ball and being mm. more or less efficient of it is really interesting. And I think there's a lot of kind of phase of play metrics there of a team's ability to turn possession to shots, which I've not used too much, but I think that's a big thing of explaining these things, not just pointing out they're better or they're worse, because usually most people can see that. But explaining why that's the case, I think, is very important in terms of, you know, this is the stuff that club analysts are doing. And if it's what they're doing, it's the stuff that the coaches are thinking about. And I think everyone wants to think really like a coach or a manager at the end of the day. So if you can mm. replicate that on the site and talk about those things using data, I think that's really, really interesting. So, uh, yeah, mm. that's the those are the two real topics for me that I'd love to read more on as a reader from this point out. In terms of XG, uh, I mean, the, the poster boy metric for uh, getting data analytics some way into the mainstream. Uh, and, and certainly I've been very defensive, as a lot of people who are into football analytics, about XG uh, over the last five, six, seven years. But is there an extent now, do you think, with the with the way that analysis is developed, where we might be relying on it a bit too much? It's almost like... The mainstream have said, "Okay, we'll we've, we'll take that. We'll use that now. We do analytics now, uh, and and perhaps not really digging much deeper, especially with newer metrics emerging seemingly every six months or so that, that might be able to offer more than expected goals in in some areas." Yeah, I think that it's good to keep coming back to the fact that analytics is the use of data in football. It's not the use of XG in football. And there are more metrics than that. And sometimes the simpler numbers can be just as, as effective and, and tell the story a bit better. Um, so I do think that it's great to have a poster boy and it is kind of the um, the way of getting people interested. And it's obviously in it's in FIFA now and it's in Football Manager and people, it's a good gateway to, to get interested. But I think that, um, yeah, there are more metrics. There are different ways of telling stories and... Uh, it's it's kind of wise to be open to that because not every answer, uh, not every question can be answered with with mm. XG. Um, so yeah, I think we'll we'll get there, and there'll be new metrics that that will come in. But I think that's a, a good takeaway that I learned fairly early on. And I try and stick to as much as possible. Well, I was pleased to see uh, the field tilt metric used on Monday Night Football this week, Tom, which I think was uh, when you used it. Can't remember where it was. Might have been on the podcast. Maybe it was an article. I hadn't heard that before, but it's. It's one of those where I must admit when I first had field tilt, I thought, "What's what's all that about?" But it's one of those metrics that I think actually a lot of people are skeptical about possession stats for that kind of reason, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, you can probably explain what it is better than me, but that's a good example of something that just seems um, not necessarily improvement, but a slightly more advanced version of something that uh, you know possession is an acknowledged stat, but people always say, "Well, it's about what you do with the possession," and that explains it a little bit more. It's funny that, so field tilt for those that don't know is the, the share of final third possession that each team had. So, um, you know, if I had 80% field tilt, it means that for every 100 passes in the in the final third between me and the opposition, I had 80 of them, they had, they had 20. So it kind of shows some degree of dominance in the final third um, in a given game or over a season. And I think that, yeah, there's a few interesting things with that. The first is Monday Night Football, when I'm using it, choosing not to just call it... Um, share of possession in the final third or something a bit more less sexy and less kind of like branded but easy to understand um, but yeah certainly it's one of those numbers that it opens the conversation up about possession in different areas being more valuable than others and I think that's 
the point it's trying to get to, and that's definitely really interesting. Um, and yeah, it's just little things like that where you can slice slice numbers and give them different names, and I think that's where you know we'll probably see that a bit more with uh, we looked at it a bit with possession value um, and looking at kind of medium value actions and high value actions and really these are kind of runs into certain areas with the ball or passes from deep into the final third um, with a bit more nuance that, that the model kind of adds um, but yeah I think that there's a, a bunch of ways that more of those metrics will seep into the game I think you put in your notes Michael kind of progressive passes and carries which is now kind of a, a accepted part of the game not everyone knows off the top of their head what the the definition is but they know it's getting the ball upfield through those two types of actions um mm. it's been really interesting to see those kind of come to the fore a bit more probably high turnovers is another one as well which we kind of built at adopter a few years ago and now it's seeping into the mainstream more and more which is uh cool to see we've mentioned expected threat a few times xt uh, in terms of player-specific analysis, giving further context and, and further breakdown than XG numbers individually or XA numbers individually give. Uh, do we think that could be something that uh, it'd be valuable to, to start easing into maybe a Monday night segment over the next few weeks or months? Yeah, for sure. I think that some of the best applications of that I've seen actually are more the, the kind of game level overview, which is the almost like a not like a race chart but it shows the difference in xt over time between the two teams and it really for me whenever i've seen those graphics it really tallies what i've seen at a match um now one of the more recent examples i saw on twitter was um the brentford chelsea game when brentford were just dominating chelsea towards the end of the the second half and their xt map was just all them like complete dominance and getting the ball into really high value positions and i think as a like means of telling the story of a match in a very concise graphical way it's fantastic and I'd love to see that on more match reports and you know apps and things like that which are summarising the game so um, yeah I think that's a very useful stat uh, when dressed up in certain ways to to retell the story um, better than you know your sports writer burning 600 words to try and do the same Michael you're someone who who built your style as a writer and your profile as a writer uh, as a digital freelance football journalist um, and, and then joined The Athletic a couple of years ago, of course. Uh, you're someone who, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is very sort of uh, fluent in the language of, of data analytics in football, but doesn't necessarily uh, write in that language. I think that's a, a way of putting it that, that makes some sense. Um, how, over the last two years, let's say, while Tom's been at The Athletic, have you noticed yourself and your writing, the way that, that you break down the game, be improved, I hope, by the the well, the increase and the, the improved use of, of data analytics in football? Well, it's, it's changed a lot. I think the last two years have been really... Things have progressed a lot, certainly in terms of the, the journalism side of things. Um, I mean, to go back longer, to go back about, let's say, go back 10 years ago, I once wrote an article, probably 2011, that semi-famously annoyed Owen Coyle because I used some stats to show that when everyone was talking about his Bolton side being very um, adventurous and attacking, the stats actually didn't demonstrate that. And that was pretty much the first time that publicly available stats on the real basics like possession and pass completion were available. And really what I was doing, I mean, now you look at it 10 years on, this is really basic stuff. It's literally just a graph with every side's average possession in the league. But I only did that article because that was pretty much the first time I could get access to figures like that. So 
that in itself was a bit of a revolution. And then it felt to me, certainly in terms of the, the stats and the numbers that were available to someone like me who's not a data specialist, there wasn't that much progress from that over the over the you know maybe next five six years something like that. It was still the kind of basic on-ball stuff that OBSA were producing that you can find on whoscored.com, which is a really useful website for that kind of thing. But it feels to me like last two or three years, uh, the um, the launch of FBREF, I think, has changed that in terms of what stats are publicly available. But also with people like Tom and like Mark, who are able to turn those raw numbers into visualizations is the main thing, because FBREF mm. is fantastic. But the number of the number of numbers on there, the amount of numbers on there, is just incredible and quite overwhelming. And I think it's, you know, it's it's about how it looks uh, as an end product. And I think that's what Tom and Mark have done really well. It's, it's, it's not the data side of things, it's the data visualization side of things where I think we've we've been really good on the athletic. And Tom, I mean, that this is why I just find it astonishing that, that you guys are able to do what you do because visualization is another skill, it strikes me entirely, to modeling. It's another skill entirely to writing down words that make sense and read well off a page uh, you know that that needs a, a very creative muscle in a brain as well to, to make sure you're making something that doesn't look absolutely horrendous yeah it's one of those things i've like i've always prided myself on and been interested in kind of making things that look pretty because i've always i mean my own personal experience is when you're looking at graphs and charts it's so much easier to to look at something which looks nice and engage with it versus something that's not and that's kind of always been part of my philosophy um with with kind of data viz and um having a set style was something i did even before i joined the athletic i think i spent my last two weeks at my last job building the themes out for the athletic um and that obviously paid off because having a kind of consistent brand and a consistent look that's where you've seen value for the likes of the economist and the ft and dare i say bbc's data journalism teams as well and i'd like to think that we're kind of we help pioneer that in the kind of sports space on the on the athletic and would see hopefully some of our stuff is up there amongst the quality like your John Burr Murdoch's at, at the FT and and the guys at the Economist things like that. So um yeah that's that's been really interesting and it's been a challenge for me in terms of like I'm the first was the first data hire at the Athletic and no one's telling you how to do data journalism here and I don't have a like a good way of writing them down and forming a process it's kind of making it as you go along but um there definitely has to be a kind of craft in terms of making things look good uh, and it's nice to hear that that you think we've done that which is um yeah it's fantastic i just like pizza michael what is do you think the the sort of future of uh, data and football journalism well i'd like to think that you know most uh, most newspapers now who have a sports section I think they, they should all have a data person because it's not just about the articles that, that they can do individually, um, but it's also about the collaborations. I mean, the number of times that Tom and Mark have helped out with, you know, one of our club writers doing a specific piece on a specific player with just a couple of visualizations that really transform the piece, I think, and, and, and just give some flavor and give some identity to it. Um, I think it's uh, fantastic. And this, there's a, a real good group of, I mean, we've been very lucky to have Tom and, and Mark as well, but there's a lot of people now, I think, it seems to me, like with the knowledge, like relatively young people who understand data, who understand coding, who are massive football fans. Um, it seems to me like there are people out there who can really take journalism to a, a slightly different place. And I, I don't think data journalism is as much of a niche as it felt like even a couple of years ago now. It feels like, uh, 
yeah, it's not just an add-on for me. It feels like something that's a real necessity. And uh, of course, you know, when when news dropped that Tom was leaving, I think everyone thought, wow, we're, we're going to have to replace him because we've, we've really come to depend on him. I mean, I would tend to agree. I, I've kind of been surprised that we've not seen other um, similar kind of publications make similar hires. And I wonder if that's just due, due to a lack of risk, but also if you want to do this properly, like it, it is an investment, right? To pay for data, to pay for tools, um, in terms of investment of time to, to build certain things up. I mean, I was lucky to have a space where I could spend time on bigger ticket ideas and, and building out you know, loads of scripts and just a load of tools that we could do to pull certain things together in a, in a quick period of time. I think these are a lot of unknowns for a lot of you know editors everywhere in, in different newsrooms um, within sports. So yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting challenge of how do you kind of change a, a non-data culture into a data one. Um, uh, but obviously that's a problem for, for other publications and not for The Athletic. I suppose as well we're, we're focusing only on the larger publications and the larger sites here where now uh, and you know Michael certainly and certainly myself have benefited so much from the, the period of time that we've lived in and, and tried to start careers in because of what you know the internet has allowed to happen in terms of of building a profile and building an audience without necessarily having to be employed full-time at a large publication. And it, it strikes me that there are well, obviously many more ways for writers to, to write and make money uh, these days, you know, digitally without necessarily having to, to work for uh, a big brand or a, a big publication. And I was thinking about other analytics writers that I like, because it's not all just you, Tom, and, and just Mark, as much as uh, I do love reading your stuff on The Athletic. And actually, a, a lot of the the big name analytics writers within that particular community, Tom, are uh, running their own newsletters and, and can do that to make money and are finding big audiences that way. You know, I, I think of um, Grace Robertson and Maram Albahana, uh, Ryan O'Hanlon, people like that, writers who, who are doing sensational work off their own backs uh, and, you know, building pretty substantial audiences doing so. I guess the, the main difference there is that writing for a, a more mainstream or a, a major publication or something like The Athletic, you know, you're you're talking to people who might need to be converted, whereas most likely the people that subscribe to uh, a data analytics in football newsletter, or dare I say it, a podcast about lower league football in England, uh, they're probably already converted. So I suppose there's a bit of difference there. Um, very standard question, um, but I think there'll be a lot of young people listening who would thank me for doing so. I hope so anyway. Um, that sounded so David Brent. But the question is, what advice... Do you have to to someone whose passion would be to write about analytics in football? Let's say someone like Tom Warville of three or four years ago. <laughs> I think the the biggest advice you can really give is is differentiate yourself and don't pigeonhole yourself um, as a kind of certain thing and just try and stand out from the crowd. I mean that's something that I I looked to do straight away when at university was start um, blogging about analytics and try and make a, a name for herself and I hate hate saying it but like build a brand it's kind of a necessary evil um to to do that and definitely use social media as a tool to to build a following and, and promote your work but i think that um you know in any industry in any sector if you want to um get to a certain place you need to stand out from the crowd and there's so much data available now there's so many resources out there that if you're interested in becoming a an analytics writer or working for a club like i do see it at the moment is it's a supply side issue like a lot of clubs, I probably get asked probably weekly at this point, 
we're looking for a data scientist. Can you recommend anyone? And a year ago, my shortlist would have been really long. But now all those people have got jobs and I am not wholly aware of you know everyone else who's out there. So I think that's the case for, for writing in uh, an analytics context. There'll be more demand for those people. And again, what's the supply like? And in clubs as well, clubs are only going to keep hiring more data people and trying to move to be more smart with this stuff. So um, differentiate yourself, have a public portfolio of work um, kind of rigorously look to, to feedback and get better and um, there's a big dose of luck involved of course I mean I'm extremely lucky and fortuitous to be where I am um, because certain things kind of found my way and, and that's that's life but I think that if you do those things you put yourself in as good a position as, as possible. Mm. Uh, and Michael in terms of those who enjoy listening to this podcast and are concerned at the departure of a, a key part of the team we'll be fine won't we? We didn't lack ideas before Warville joined the team and we won't lack ideas after he leaves. Yeah, exactly. No, we'll, we'll um, yeah, we survive before and we'll survive after. But yeah, in, <laughs> as, as Tom always says, you know, when Aston Villa sell Grudish or something, we don't go for direct replacement. You know, we try to try to strengthen the team in various areas. So yeah, I'm sure we will struggle on. But no, Tom will be a, a big loss. And uh, one thing we should mention before we go is that uh, at the uh, the press awards, Earlier this year, Tom was a uh, runner-up in the Data Journalist of the Year. And the joint winners were, were James Tozer and Martin Gonzalez for The Economist and John Byrne Murdoch uh, for The Financial Times, who have both spent the last 18 months uh, doing what almost solely to do with the pandemic and have done fantastic work. I mean, you know, goes almost beyond journalism. I think has had a, a real humanitarian benefit and has probably influenced government policy and probably saved lives. So Tom can't really compete with that. But in terms of data of journalists of the year, if you get it for doing that kind of thing, it's a little bit like getting a number one for being on like Live Aid single. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's inevitable. Whereas <laughs> Tom, uh, you know, has been best of the rest. So has, has really been the, uh, yeah, the best in the business. So it's been great to have him. I can't help but just belittle you in a very small way one last time, Tom. Surely if there's a joint winner, <laughs> yeah. you, weren't, you weren't runner-up, were you? You've come third there. I agree. <laughs> you've, still got, you've still got a medal, though. That's what counts. Yeah, of course it is. Um, just a, a little bit of fun to finish. I thought, uh, Michael, it might be interesting for us to, to see what RB Leipzig were after when they were hiring a, a data scientist to join their scouting department. They've ended up with Tom Warville here. Uh, among the things that they were after proven experience of data-driven storytelling and data visualization techniques that was a that was a good start for you i think it's fair to say proactive and structured approach to problem solving possibly a passion for attention to detail when working to meet tight deadlines definitely uh, excellent communication and listening skills yeah tick uh, organization and interpersonal agility as part of a successful team in a matrix organization absolutely no idea what that means so <laughs> could be could be a yes could be a no there uh, knowledge and experience used using established data sources in football and this is a guy who built half of them uh, drive and creativity to take the rb leipzig scouting department to the next level uh, i think we can see why they ended up with tom um tom it's been an absolute pleasure to do the pod with you. Thank you so much for being on it with us. And uh, I know that uh, I will speak for all of the listeners as well when we wish you viel Glück on your move to Germany. Thank you very much. Yeah, I definitely would like to say it's been a real joy working with you guys on this podcast for the last, what, full-time year. But, you know, overall on and off two years, it's been a, a lot of fun. I've learned a lot and uh, I'll miss it. So, yes, I'll be uh, listening intently from this point onwards. But thank you very much. Helped us all 
keep going, I think, during some uh, some dark times for the globe. So, some hor- uh, horrible haircuts as well. Some horrible, horrible haircuts um, and some great fun we've had on the podcast, on the WhatsApp group, and we've been planning pods each week. So um, we will miss you, but we wish you all the best. It's actually not the last time that you will hear Tom Warville's voice on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We have a bonus episode coming out over the next few weeks. It is an interview episode. Tom and I travelling to an English football club to talk to their sporting director, an episode that's been months in the making and, and really looking forward to getting out there to you guys. But Michael and I, well, we'll just have to dust ourselves down and go again, uh, as we have always done over the last two years. Uh, so do join us again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic. Tom Wolver's got one last piece to drop before he goes, theathletic.com forward slash tactics to give him the send-off that he deserves in the comments. Go well, everyone. We'll talk again next week. The Athletic.